Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, Today's going to be the first part of a three-part series. Uh, We're doing a Rich's Vascular Trauma podcast uh, series with Alexis Loria and Alec Kersey. They are both uh, general surgery residents in the D.C. area. Um, In conjunction with Dr. Nigel Tai and Dr. Todd Rasmussen, they wrote a resident-oriented, high-yield review of vascular trauma for the fourth edition of Rich's Vascular Trauma. They are here today to discuss how these need-to-know tips for residents in a three-part series. So, Alec and Alexis, welcome to Behind the Knife. Awesome. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks yep. for having us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. So tell us about this book and, and this uh, section that you added to the book this year. So the goal is to provide a quick reference um, for residents who are on call and the do's and don'ts and how to generally approach vascular trauma. Yeah, definitely geared towards kind of a quick refresher and, and geared specifically towards residents. Um, the, t- the main text of Rich's vascular trauma is written by attending level vascular surgeons with far more detail. So our chapter kind of distills the information in the main text of the book um, to the need to know points for the resident level. And then within the text, um, each of the sections we discuss will refer to back to the chapter in the book where the reader can review more concepts. Perfect. Yeah. And if anyone wants more information, you know, regarding these topics, we actually go into many of these topics in much more detail in our trauma vascular series that was with Dr. Rasmussen, who's one of the lead editors of the book. So this is sort of the three-part series, small version of the the series with Dr. Rasmussen. So uh, tell us a little bit about your guys' intent for this series. So uh, we're often listening to BTK on our way into work on runs and, you know, as another way to study. So we thought this could be something useful for um, residents and trainees to be able to uh, learn the topic of vascular trauma in a different context as opposed to just studying from a book. Yeah, absolutely. We're thinking, you know, you're on your way into a trauma call. It's somewhere where you expect to see some, you know, heavy vascular trauma. It's a nice breeze to kind of listen through on your way in. Yeah, absolutely. The, the more you know, the better prepared you'll be. And so we're going to start off today uh, discussing damage control resuscitation. Uh, we're going to d- discuss identifying the, in, the injuries and the workup for them. And then we're also going to dive into temporary vascular shunts and Reboa in today's episode. And then the next two episodes will, will be a little bit more case-based discussion of specific injuries. So let's jump right into this. Uh, what are the critical first steps in damage control resuscitation and how do you approach a patient with a suspected vascular injury? So so the patient presentation is really going to dictate the initial management. Not every trauma patient presents in the same way. Um, And so there's some key key components to consider uh, when dealing with the unstable patient that comes into your trauma bay. Really, damage control resuscitation starts in the field, and that's with good hemostatic adjuncts if needed and ongoing resuscitation. Again, in that setting, you would want to be considering permissive hypotension based on that clinical scenario. So thinking about those things that have been done in the field, when the patient arrives into your trauma bay, especially a patient in extremis, um, you really want to stick to the basics. Um, We reference the CABCs. Um, It's similar to the standard ABC algorithm that everybody uses, but it 
leads with catastrophic hemorrhage, which is obviously very important in vascular trauma and making sure that's um, mitigated right away. Yeah. So good point with the, the C part of the ABCs is definitely a slight variation, um, but generally the same principles. We're just trying to make sure the tourniquets are in place and uh, preventing uh, catastrophic bleeding out in the field. Um, so for the listeners, as, as opposed to the classic ATLS ABC teaching, the C ABCs format is taught in the military setting with a focus on uh, the catastrophic bleeding first, mainly for the medics out there in the field. Right. And the C or this catastrophic bleeding of this mantra should be really taken care of in the pre-hospital setting. But when you, when the patient arrives at trauma bay, you consider that C is really the checkbox of making sure everything's working appropriately to manage any bleeding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many of these uh, hemostatic adjuncts can be uh, jarred or dislodged with transfers. So you don't want to miss a tourniquet failure. Yeah, and since we're on the topic of tourniquets, I think there's a couple important uh, things to discuss when regarding regarding tourniquets and hemostatic dressings. Um, First of all, it's very important to be familiar with the type of tourniquets and dressings that your local EMTs are using or that are available to you in your trauma bay um, and being facile with uh, application and removal. Yeah, absolutely. You would hate to want to be able to fix it, but it's some commercial commercial tourniquet you haven't seen before and really not know how to use it. Um, and, and really, if it's not working on arrival, then absolutely fix it. But if it is working, you shouldn't be taking these things down as the patient comes in. You really don't want to touch them. If it's, it's effectively controlling the bleeding, you want to then go through your the rest of your ABCs and really only be taking down a tourniquet or a compressive dressing for a very specific imaging operative or exam purpose. Yeah, and this is something definitely to make the team aware of when you're about to take down a tourniquet or something uh, that's controlling potentially a site of major hemorrhage. Um, definitely having other adjuncts available and ready to reapply um, can be a life-saving uh, intervention for the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this should primarily be done in the OR or with uh, uh, multiple hands available to help uh, get hemostasis. And I think uh, to the trainees out there, I think if you just go ask your EMTs and your paramedics, kind of what do they have? Um, you know, what is the stop the bleed course given out? Just make sure kind of the very basics uh, that people have, they'd be happy to show you and it really will come in handy one day, I, I guarantee you. So we've addressed the catastrophic bleeding. Let's skip the A and the B because this is a vascular surgery podcast and a general surgery podcast. So let's dive into the the circulation. Um, So step one here in the the circulation is following kind of your classic ATLS is looking for other sources um, of hemorrhage, but then gaining large bore IV access. There's a variety of types of access methods, um, but going with the basics, getting just good IV access so you can start your resuscitation. And then when thinking about resuscitation, you know, this is really important is you want to replace blood loss with blood product. And, you know, now really the standard is the one-to-one-to-one. Again, keeping in mind permissive hypotension where appropriate based on the patient's concomitant injuries. Um, And as something that has been frequently confusing to me, um, technically the one-to-one-to-one is six units of packed red blood cells, six units of FFP, and a pack of platelets, which contains six units. There's kind of a technical thing to be aware of. Yeah, I think it makes it a little easier nowadays because some hospitals are going to whole blood, which is basically, you know, all these things together. um, And then you don't really have to quite think um, about the individual components and and timing them. So um, if your institution, you may want to check your institution, maybe using whole blood. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the last thing here is that TXA is something that's being used um, a lot more. We won't dive too deep into this for this podcast, but just be aware of what your hospital's algorithm is and make sure it's uh, being considered as a, if it's appropriate um, at, at this point in, this, in the uh, resuscitation and management. Yeah, I've definitely seen a resurgence of TXA. Um, so during the initial resuscitation, what other adjuncts or steps should you be thinking of? So another relatively new adjunct for a patient in extremis during the initial resuscitation is Reboa. Uh, you may need this in the very beginning at the catastrophic bleeding or at the end of the, the circulation C. Um, and then we'll discuss the Reboa in a little more detail later in this episode. Uh, a couple of other things to consider more of an aside is, you know, your broad spectrum antibiotics and or tetanus when, you know, when the patient's coming in, especially with a, um, a lot of dirty wounds. Um, and then, after these interventions that you're going through in the ABCs, making sure that you're circling back after an intervention is done and making sure it's working, making sure that you're seeing the response that you would that you would expect and nothing else needs to be taken care of. Definitely. And then, you know, a few other minor details or minor or major, you want to really be cognizant of the coagulopathy in these trauma patients. So use your TAG or your Rotem to monitor that and continue to monitor physiology with as many variables as you can. So you may want to consider invasive monitoring with an A-line, especially in a setting of a patient you may end up using that line for Reboa later. Um, be measuring you know, clinical indicators such as urine output, lab values like lactate. Anything that gives you a good picture of the patient status is, is going to help you early on. And then lastly, closed-loop communication in a busy, loud trauma bay is really important. So make sure you know what everyone in the room has heard you say and they're, they're repeating that back to you or kind of closing the loop in terms of instructions and orders and be aware of what other teams like ortho, neurosurgery, other um, specialists may need to get done as part of the initial resuscitation and work as a team. Okay. Yeah. So to recap our damage control uh, resuscitation portion uh, with the C, we make sure we don't have catastrophic bleeding. The tourniquets are in place and doing their job and we're not touching them until the whole team's on board. Uh, we're, you know, of course doing our A and our B, but then for the C, we're uh, focusing on uh, good IV access. We're getting uh, blood products into the patient. Um, and then we're also considering our other adjuncts, such as uh, Reboa and ma- monitoring hem- hemodynamics and the uh, coagulopathy. We, we've kind of done the damage control, the patient's stable, but we, we have to identify our injury. Um, so how do you identify um, an injury in a patient like this? Again, like everywhere, the approach to this in most trauma workups really depends on the patient's stability and presentation. Yeah, I very much agree with that. A patient who's coming in um, in extremis, um, especially with hard signs of vascular injury, um, they could be going directly to the OR where your stable patient is going to be getting um, potentially more, more focused imaging to determine what exactly is going on. And at minimum with these patients, you know, even if they're crashing, you really want to try to get a pulse and or a Doppler exam and, and if possible, basic neurology exam early on so you can have an idea if you're concerned about vascular injury or how extensive the injury has been and how much impact it's had on the limb. It really should take seconds to get some some basic exam here and not delay your management. Yeah, and, and speaking of the specifics of uh, your exam, uh, vascular injury, I know a lot of the time we discuss a classic dogma of hard signs and soft signs of vascular injury. So those should be being looked at and um, being looked for as potential in- indicators that you have a vascular um, injury there. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to emphasize the importance of the Doppler exam. Of course, they're going to tell you that, uh, you know, some other service stole the Doppler and they can't find one. Um, but this is critical um, in, in determining uh, the management of this patient and also their neurologic exam, whether this limb is salvageable, how long it's been going on and having a good documentation of this before heading to the OR um, is critical um, for both the patient and the surgeon. So, uh, but since you mentioned it, the hard and soft signs, let's, uh, let's cover the hard signs first. Yeah, absolutely. So the hard signs of vascular injury, you're looking for um, some pulsatile hemorrhage or some um, rapid hemorrhage, expanding hematoma, a brewier th thrill, absent pulses, um, and an ABI or injured extremity index less than 0.9. And remember, having a pulse doesn't mean that there is definitively not a vascular injury. So it's not quite that sensitive, but lack of a pulse will tell you something and you should be have a much higher concern that there's a vascular injury going on, but the presence of a pulse doesn't necessarily rule it out. Yeah, uh, agreed. Discussing ABI here is important because this is a great way to gain more objective information quickly at the bedside. A normal ABI can rule out a vascular injury in a limb that is neurovascularly intact without a hematoma. And so really all you need for this is you need your Doppler probe, and you need blood pressure cuff, and you compare the blood pressure at, in the arm to the blood pressure at the ankle, and you have your ABI. So this should be done for any patient with extremity injury and concern for vascular injury. So absolutely. Um, finishing up with the, the soft signs, uh, what you're looking for is a history of hemorrhage at the scene, which you'll get that information from the EMTs dropping the patient off. Uh, noting an extremity or a neck wound um, with unexplained hemorrhagic shock in the patient noting a neurologic deficit in the periphery uh, next to potentially some sort of vessel injury, and then seeing any sort of high-risk injuries that are in proximity to vascular structures. Yeah. So, you know, we have these hard and soft signs, but what do we really talk about these for? How does this help us guide our uh, management of these patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really the bottom line. And, and it is definitely guidance. It's not always like a clear cut matter, but in general, a hard sign should prompt you to go, to, to go directly to the operating room to explore that injury and get control. And a soft sign is someone that needs further workup. You can't just say, oh, it's not, they don't need operative intervention, you know, ignore it. They need further vascular workup, but they don't necessarily need immediate intervention. Absolutely. I think that's great. So, you know, one thing that's always important when uh, evaluating a patient is the history. So what are some things you're looking for that might give you insight into a possible vascular injury? Um, a few key things that you need to obtain, especially in a situation that you're moving quickly um, and getting to the operating room quickly is knowing the mechanism that occurred. Um, any interventions that were done in the field, especially those controlling uh, massive hemorrhage, and then any uh, blood loss at the scene or what they can estimate their blood loss to be at the scene. Absolutely. And then a really important thing too, if a patient comes in with a tourniquet, you need to know when that was put on. You want to know the ischemic time for that limb because that really, that, that starts the clock for the time in which you want to revascularize the limb. So definitely be aware of how long the tourniquets are on. Absolutely. So now that we've discussed the history um, and the exam, let's get into some of the workup. What is your approach to imaging these vascular injuries? Primarily, this is going to be done with a CTA. Um, and there are some important things to think about, especially at the resonant level when you're ordering and trying to obtain these images. 
Um, the first thing is just being very explicit with your comments in your order, or even better, discussing directly with the, the radiologist um, what you're looking for based on your exam and history. This can really change what they're doing regarding timing of contrast and making sure they're seeing the, you're seeing the appropriate anatomy um, around the area that you're concerned for injury. Definitely. And then when you can, you know, work with the other teams, um, if you're the vascular surgeon, work with the, tra the trauma, the general surgeon, or the orthopedic surgeon, and try to get all your imaging in one shot, um, which leads into our next point is, you know, the patient has to be stable to be sent to the CT scanner, and you really should go with them if you have any concerns, because it's really try easy to try to get away with a little bit more imaging for workup, but having a patient crash when this CT scanner can be really dramatic. Absolutely. I think those are all great points about optimizing the imaging of these patients and having that conversation to, you know, tell them where you think the injury is. They can do different phases. Uh, you know, they can hold a delayed phase out longer to help see some venous injuries and other things like that. Um, and of course, you know, uh, as vascular surgeons, we have angiography available to us, which we have in most of our hybrid rooms and many of the trauma rooms nowadays. Um, but, uh, you know, the basic management is, is done with the CTA and uh, the angiography is a little outside the scope of this discussion. But what is in the scope of this discussion, which I think is the most important takeaway of this entire discussion today, is temporary vascular shunts, what they are and how to use them. So these are important damage control and temporizing measures. Um, when should you consider using a shunt? So you can consider using a shunt in a few different situations. Um, the first thing to, to note is a shunt is used to get inline flow to whatever the the injured organ or extremity is rapidly. So if you're going to in the spot where you're going to have operative delays and you can't get to the um, repair of the artery to get in line flow right away, placing a shunt quickly is something that could be done there. If you're at um, in a military setting, if you're at a place where you need to evacuate the patient rapidly, putting a shunt in prior to evacuation, or even if you're at a smaller um, tertiary center, um, you need to gain control and then get them to um, um, a place that has maybe more vascular capability, putting in a shunt there um, is also is very appropriate. Um, and then finally, if you're doing um, if you're doing an operative intervention that requiring multiple teams or ortho needs to fix a fracture, which is which is common in association with vascular injuries, uh, placing a shunt to maintain flow to the limb while they're doing their um, their X fix or whatever repair they're doing um, can be very key. Yeah, absolutely. And so for our more junior listeners out there, can you tell us a little bit just the basics of what shunts are? Yeah, so some of the names you'll hear are Sunt, Javit, or Argyle shunts, um, among you know a variety of others. And really, it's anything that, like Alex said, can restore inline flow. So if you're in an austere environment and you don't have one of these name brand shunts, you can use something as simple as IV tubing, a pediatric feeding tube, small chest tube, really any tubular structure that fits within that vessel and can be secured safely so it's not going to migrate. Um, and they can be configured in placement in two different positions. So you can place it in line, which is kind of what makes the most sense, I think, to most people is it directly bridges that defect. But that's more useful for a short segment defect. In a larger defect of the artery, you may do a loop configuration where basically you create a loop with the shunt and either end goes in the proximal or the distal uh, defect of the artery. Yeah, so this is in essence some basically foreign material or some sort of um, tubular structure that's bridging the gap 
um, in, in the vessels there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just uh, the, the arteries that are shunted, uh, shunted. Veins can very much be shunted and are frequently shunted as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I find the looped configurations a little more helpful for like, you know, if I'm going from above the knee to below the knee um, or, you know, larger defects and you want to kind of get the shunt out of the way so something can be repaired underneath it. Um, that, those are some reasons to think about using a looped shunt. Um, so how long can these shunts stay in place? Commonly, you'll read, especially in the military literature, about two to five hours. Um, but really, the scenario is going to dictate the length of time needed. If, if you can't fix it, you can't fix it. You've got to get the patient to a safe place. So really, the bottom line is that the goal is to remove it as early as is safe, um, similar to tourniquets and other temporizing measures. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, they, they, they stay in as long as they have to, but as short as possible. So let's say you have a patient with an injured uh, injury to the distal SFA with a small defect, but who requires reduction of a femoral fracture. Um, walk me through how you'd place a shunt in this patient. So first things first, following your general principles here, obtaining your proximal and distal control of your injury, injured vascular structure, um, defining exactly what your injury is. Um, if you need to debreed any devitalized tissue in the area quickly, um, definitely do that. Um, confirm you have um, good inflow and outflow in the vessels. So um, completing a th- thrombectomy with a Fogarty catheter um, if needed to make sure you have good bleeding um, and back bleeding from your um, distal injured artery or vein. Um, next, you'll place the distal end of the shunt within the vessel, generally one to two centimeters, and then secure that with a silk. So going around the, the vessel and tying that down to the, the shunt, which is placed inside the vessel. Um, allow back bleeding to occur, which is basically releasing the clamp off of the shunt that you have. And so, you know, um, bleeding going through the, the shunt completely. Um, and then plugging that shunt in proximally, securing, securing it with the, the suture like you did um, distally. And then um, finally, you want to make sure you're you're securing that um, either those distal ties together or securing that into the the wound bed somehow. And another thing here, you know, in, in a complicated patient who maybe has a blast injury with some secondary like fragmentation injuries, they might have a more distal injury. So when you re- restore flow to say the proximal SFA, you may get distal bleeding. So be cognizant of that. That's definitely, you know, based on the patient's mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just one point I like to highlight here is the importance of back bleeding. Uh, I, I guess I didn't quite understand as like a junior trainee that there would be back bleeding if the artery, the main artery is transected, but there are those collaterals that are filling distally and uh, that vessel should be back bleeding at you, the distal stump. If it's not, it means there's likely a thrombus in there that you're going to have to use a Fogarty before you put your shunt in place. Otherwise, your shunt is not going to do anything. Um, so making sure back bleeding and vascular is a kind of critical vascular principle. So as we close out shunts, uh, do you guys have any other tips or tricks for using these? Yeah, I think it's important to always keep in mind that the shunt is a temporizing measure. So placing it and having a plan for your definitive management. So knowing if you're going to take them to the ICU for resuscitation and then back to the OR, or if they're getting evac somewhere. Um, and But knowing what's next for that injury is very important when you're placing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and knowing what's there too, because, you know, if you put a shunt in a patient, but you're going to send them to like the local community center and they don't have someone that can perform the reconstruction that patient needs. And, you know, you want to 
know why you're putting it in and what's going to be done next. Um, and then another thing is just being aware of and prepared for complications. So shunts can dislodge, they can be kinked. Um, you can cause luminal injury with placement. So, you know, putting the shunt within the artery can disrupt the intima and, and can lead to thrombosis and or the shunt itself can th thrombose. So you want to know those are potentials and have a plan for managing each one of them. Yeah, and, uh, and speaking of thrombosis, that brings up a good point. In the trauma setting uh, with shunts, you do not need to systemically heparinize these patients um, for shunt placement, um, something that can come up pretty often when discussing shunts. So just placing the shunt, leaving it, and then coming back for your arterial or, or venous repair is, is enough. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, you don't have heparinized, but, um, you know, if you have a smaller shunt and a more distal vessel, uh, you'll probably have a better chance of it staying open if you are heparinized. Of course, if you have iliac shunt or some large proximal femoral artery shunt, you probably don't need uh, anticoagulation. But you know, many times the patients are just too sick to even allow the consideration of anticoagulation. So we're going to shift gears to our last topic of today, and we're going to talk about Reboa. So can you tell us what Reboa is and when it is indicated? Um, so Reboa, or resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, is used for non-compressible torso hemorrhage. In essence, it's a minimally invasive alternative to a resuscitative thoracotomy. Um, you should not be using this for thoracic trauma or anything above the diaphragm because it will, in, a, in, an, in essence, increase bleeding from these injuries. Um, yeah, and this is definitely a temporizing measure analogous to um, aortic cross clamping or other temporizing measures like that. Um, so it allows for transport and or stabilization, uh, I should say transport to the OR, stabilization um, to the next um, kind of phase of treatment. So uh, make sure when this is placed that you're immediately thinking of your, your next steps in surgical management. Absolutely. So let's, let's say you're the resident on call and a patient rolls in with a stab wound to the abdomen, uh, their blood pressure is dropping and you're concerned for intra-abdominal bleeding. Walk me through the placement of the Reboa. So again, maybe for the more junior listeners, but we'll, we'll talk through the steps. So first, I gain percutaneous access to the femoral artery using ultrasound guidance. Um, your approach is about two to three centimeters below the inguinal ligament. Um, so using the Seldinger technique, I would place a seven French sheath. Um, that allows placement for the more commonly used wireless Reboa um, in the ER setting. Great. And so let's say you're having a hard time getting access percutaneously. What's your next move? Um, so your next move here would definitely be a cut down. Um, just walking through those steps, you're going to make a longitudinal incision extending inferiorly from the midpoint between the pubic tubercle, uh, tubercle and the ASIS. Um, important that you're using those landmarks and not the inguinal creases with obese patients or just um, other alternate anatomy from trauma. It can be easy to um, get thrown off there. Um, and then once you cut down on the artery, you're directly visualizing it and then puncturing at that point. Yeah, this is a, a frequent vascular surgeon soapbox moment to talk about the anterior superior iliac spine and the, and the pubic tubercle. You want to feel those and you want to mark them and that's your inguinal ligament. And that is stable no matter how big the patient is. Very commonly, these Reboas are placed in the SFA or, or you know, art lines and things like that that were meant for the common femoral artery because people are accessing at the groin crease and not um, at the inguinal ligament. So make sure you feel these landmarks and go just um, cauded to them. And in that way, you'll have a, a safer puncture site. So how do you know where you want to put the balloon? 
So you can estimate the length that you need to insert it by measuring the distance from the access site in the groin to the sternal notch if you're aiming for aortic zone one or from the access site to the umbilicus and that would get you to zone three. Yeah, for, for intra-abdominal bleeding, you're gonna be uh, placing the, the balloon in zone one and for pelvic bleeding or things like that, you're gonna be placing in, in zone three. You're not really, you're, I shouldn't say not really, you're not going to be placing the, the balloon up in zone two ever. And so just for people to get a visualization, you're actually you know, holding the Reboa outside of the patient and measuring kind of how much of this catheter needs to go in to either reach the sternal notch for a zone one or the umbilicus for a zone three placement. And you kind of mark that spot and that's how high you know how to go um, when, you, when you actually place it in. So you insert the catheter into zone one, we're thinking there's some aortic injury and abdominal aortic injury. How do you know how much to inflate the balloon? So first, you know, a question I asked early on is what do you actually inflate with? You don't want to put air in there because you don't want to have the risk of the balloon rupturing and causing embolus. So you're going to inflate ideally with a contrast and saline mix, and that'll allow the balloon to be seen on a plain film. So if you want to confirm that you're located where you want to be, that's a useful adjunct. And then you're going to inflate the balloon relatively, you know, steadily but slowly until you get a recognizable hemodynamic response. And that would be an increased upper extremity blood pressure or diminished or um, absent distal pulses. There is some tactile feedback to doing this with the syringe. So if you're feeling resistance, you know, check what's going on in your line and make sure that you're not inflating too much because that can actually cause aortic wall tension and potentially uh, internal injury. Yeah, those are all critical points um, and take some practice. Um, and, and that's a good point is you don't want the first time you're doing this to be on someone um, that you're trying to save. So make sure you check out this catheter beforehand. Um, so what are some important last steps um, placing the Reboa? So it sounds silly, but uh, making sure the Reboa is secured to the patient to prevent uh, balloon migration. So it's easy to get lost in the idea that the balloon is up, ready to go, removing the patient, but making, the, making sure that's secured, um, it's very important. And it's also very important, similar to tourniquets, to note the time of the occlusion because time is of the essence when this balloon goes up. So let's say you're in the OR, you've done your trauma laparotomy, and you've controlled the bleeding. What should you do as you consider taking down the balloon? So there's two things you want to be cognizant when you're restoring flow. First off, the hemodynamic impact. So while the balloon is up, it creates a pretty significant cardiac afterload. Um, so you're gonna take that away completely and you, you may have some pretty significant hemodynamic alterations. And number two is that there's a good risk of ischemia reperfusion injury, given basically the entire time that balloon is up, everything distal to it is ischemic. So when the flow is restored, you wanna be aware of those two impacts. You wanna deflate the balloon slowly over a few minutes, ideally to kind of allow for a steady kind of resumption of the, the pressure below. And then also warn your anesthesia colleagues of the potential sequela, both from a hemodynamic and a biochemical or physiologic standpoint. Yeah, and as you're as you're taking a balloon down, it doesn't necessarily have, mean that the balloon has to come out completely. This catheter can remain in place with the balloon deflated for a little while if you're worried about the patient potentially crashing again on you. Um, and similarly, along those lines, that the Reboa isn't necessarily just meant for patients who are immediately crashing in front of you. These can be uh, pre-placed. Uh, pre if you're worried about a patient um, deteriorating rapidly, um, you know, along your your trauma resuscitation or as you're moving into the OR. 
Yeah, I think the pre-placement of Roboa before they actually need the balloon up, I think that is our place to potentially save more patients. I think in the crashing patient that's actively crashing, I mean, this is pretty, uh, you know, heroic and, and may, may or may not be successful. But um, in some of these patients that are at higher risk for major bleeding, um, getting the Roboa in place beforehand, um, and, and if you don't have to use it, that's great. Um, but, you know, something to consider in some of these patients. So let's talk about complications. Um, what should we look out for after Roboa use? So some common complications include um, ischemic injury, um, especially to lower limb and visceral ischemia, uh, particularly in this uh, acute kidney injury. Yeah, and the other thing is to, to be aware of is access at complications. So, you know, you're putting a seven French sheath in the femoral artery, you can cause thrombosis around the sheath and, and that can exacerbate or lead to lower limb ischemia. So you wanna be aware of that. Yeah, so certainly there are uh, risks of this, and so we don't want to just place these in anyone um, as there's significant risk. But um, you know, call your vascular surgeon early if you do encounter these uh, limb issues or site access site complications, and uh, we'll be happy to help. So thank you guys. I think this was a great initial podcast of one of three talking about the how to temporize these patients and work them up and uh, place shunts and Reboa. Um, as far as Reboa goes, I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes here that has a, a video done by one of our colleagues, Michael Vu. Um, so you actually see all the components of it and see um, how to actually use it yourself. Um, it's on our YouTube channel and I highly recommend anyone checking that out if that's interested in Reboa. Um, okay. Uh, thanks, uh, Alexis and Alec. I look forward to covering the next few podcasts with you. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Until next time, dominate the day.